That is the way to start a new year. Thank you guys for leading us into the Lord's presence this morning. That is incredible. I want to get into a text this morning that is a little out of season. So I apologize if you have your liturgical calendar or your Christian calendar, your church schedule. I'm, I'm jumping way ahead. I'm jumping into an Easter text around New Year's time and I promise you I'm doing it with intention. Uh, so this is a, a text a little bit out of season, but I hope truly at the heart of what we need to be thinking about going into a new year. We are divided into two groups of people in this world, those that love New Year's resolutions and those that staunchly criticize them. I don't make New Year's resolutions. I wouldn't write them down. To say, and there's something in all of us, though, regardless of who you are, we can all get along. But there is something in all of us, though, that craves a fresh start, whether it's the convenience of a calendar flipping from December to January or whether it's the hope of the promise of a new day or or the new prospect of something or a new move or a new job or any of those kinds of things. We love, for the most part, the opportunity to start something over. And it's important for us to understand as believers in Jesus Christ, how how ingrained that is within us and where it comes from. And so I think that we're going to find that the foundational hope for that, the, the true answer of, of getting into a new year and doing things differently beyond just our attempts to a cha- a, a challenge ourselves to, new, to do new things, to lose a few pounds or to work harder at the job or to spend more time with the kids. I mean, all of these well-meaning good things are so often so selfishly driven, even the nice ones. But it has a tendency to, to want to build us up and want to puts the, puts, it puts the focus on us and we end up doing it in the same spirit, same power, if you will, as those that are outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, lacking its, its real transformative power resting in the strength of what the scriptures would call the flesh. And so for the believer, new beginnings, new opportunities come from a much more foundational, fundamental launch point than just our hopes and dreams of a better future. So in order to dive into this, we're going to break into a a brief story, one of the probably the, the most famous stories ever told, but certainly one that's going to be completely familiar to all of you here. And it is around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for our text, we're going to go to Mark 16. And in Mark 16, we're going to stop along the way and, and, and fill in some of the gaps or provide a little bit of background, but tell this story and then see how it applies to our thoughts for 2020. Here's what the scripture says in verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene or Mary the Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, a separate Mary, we've got two Marys in the same story. So we are going to refer to them as the Marys. Convenient. All right. And Salome. Well, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, who's the him? We're talking about Jesus. He's just been crucified the evening before. He's been crucified on 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 Friday. And then later that day, as the sun goes down, the Sabbath is set in. And the Sabbath is, you know, for the Hebrew uh, tradition and the command of God is, is to trust in the Lord, to relax, to refrain from work. And then the rules started getting pretty steep in what the Sabbath was. Basically, there was no commerce. There was no trading. There's no far travel. There's no working your livestock, any of those things. 
So when the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday, pretty much everything else comes to a halt. And so these ladies, the Marys and Salome, they bought spices when the Sabbath was passed. So we're now we're on Saturday evening, roughly 24 hours after Jesus' crucifixion. So that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, this is along the way, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So again, to set the the scene here a little bit, we know the timing now that's developing. These are the same ladies. They are, they have literally been at the foot of the cross. They are in the audience of watching their savior, their God and their king, their friend, and in many ways their brother, that the, the one that they have been following for years and, and giving their affection and their dedication to and, and, and listening to and obeying, they just watched him die. They saw as the soldiers came to the cross and and confirmed the death of Jesus after he had already shouted out to the skies, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. Jesus putting a, a an exclamation point on his work. They're witnessing this. The soldiers come along later, as we said, and they confirm the death of Jesus in a couple of, of uh, gruesome ways. Jesus had died and they watched it all. These same women, moved by the impractical, if you will, the, the, the emotion that follows what we have when, when we love somebody so much and we can't do a thing for them. They are moved to do something. And so as soon as commerce starts back up, as soon as they can start getting out in the marketplace again, they go and buy fragrances for Jesus' body. This wasn't to embalm him. That wouldn't have been a part of the Jewish culture. They didn't believe and practice that kind of thing. They're going to buy spices and, and, and ointments to make Jesus' body smell better. Would that do anything for him? Absolutely not. Does it bring him back to life? Is it a part of their religious custom? No. But it is the thing that we do when we can't do anything else. Their whole world had come to an end suddenly. They can't believe what they're, what they're witnessing, that this is actually all final and it's done. And so just moving forward, I got to do something. I don't know what to do with this nervous energy. I don't know what to do with this heartbreak. I don't know what to do. So instead, the minute that Sabbath is lift, lifted, I'm going to do the next thing, which was purchase these spices. Now they're restricted by a little bit more time because it's sundown again. And they need daylight to apply these ointments and these fragrances. They want to go see the body of Jesus. Can't do it in the dark. He's in a dark tomb. What are we going to do? So the scripture indicates for us that they set off as it's dark so that they can arrive at the tomb as dawn breaks. These women are not waiting around for an opportunity. They are compelled. They are moved. They have compassion for the situation, but they have suffered an incredible loss. So what do they discover? We know the story well. Verse four. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. What they're, what they're experiencing here is they're, they're walking along the way and it occurs to them. Sorry to make us pause in the scripture here for a second, but it occurs to them on their way. They've been so focused on what they were going to do with these fragrances. They hadn't even thought about this gigantic obstacle in the way. 
This stone that would have been rolled somewhat downhill in this kind of track way that probably just a little bit of momentum, a little bit of muscle gets that stone going and it seals a tomb. And some would say that oftentimes what would happen is that stone would kind of rest inside the opening and would create this seal, which makes this notion that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What he did was he resuscitated himself. He wasn't really dead. He resuscitated himself and he moved the stone himself. These women were going there knowing this wasn't going to be a possibility in their strength to move it. They were saying, it's like we hadn't even thought about this. How are we even going to get to him? And so you can imagine their surprise as we saw in verse 4. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And, and there's some indication here. The white robe isn't just because it's sparkling, brilliant, and white. But these were clothes that would often be seen in somebody much more mature, someone much more respectable, someone a little bit more weathered down the road, achieving these higher places. And so it's even offsetting the whole thing is offsetting to them. Where's Jesus? Who are you? Why do you look like that? Why are you wearing those robes? What in the world's going on here? They can't make sense of any of it amidst all of their heartbreak and confusion. They were alarmed, the scripture says. That's such a gentle word. How would you feel going through all of this? I am alarmed. I'm intrigued at the moment here. You can't really convey these emotions, right, in pen. They were alarmed. And so the angel perceiving this, he said to them, don't be alarmed. Oh, okay. I was getting away with myself there for a second. I'm glad you said not to freak out. Now this is all making sense. But I love what the angel does here. He lays out the facts. He records things for history to look back on. He states some of the things that are quite obvious to the ladies, the Marys in the situation. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Yep, check, we were there. He has risen. He is not here. See where they laid him? That's right where he was. So here's what I want you to do, the angel says. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, hear this phrase, just as he told you. So these ladies, like any of us would do, notice my sarcasm. I'm sorry I didn't put up on the screen about engaging your sarcasm filter. But notice exactly, they, they did exactly what we would do, which was, oh, that's right, Jesus did say all these things. Man, did we just waste a lot of money on fragrances. I had forgotten that this was part of the plan all along. And and we had tried keeping track of everything he said. Last time he said he was going to die and rise again, we wrote it down. But gosh, it slipped our mind. No, they reacted to that. They needed to be told that because they were people. Now, I say that because you and I are people. We have a whole history, a litany of evidence that says that when God says this is what's going to happen, we have a tendency to go, "Mm, I don't know. Can you show me in a sign? Mm, I'm not sure. I don't quite feel that in my spirit. I don't know if I can believe the words that are coming out of your mouth right now. You see, they had been just as guilty as the disciples were. Peter himself, when Jesus had said, the son of man has to be turned over to the the authorities and they're going to take me captive. They're going to crucify me and I'll rise again. Peter said, I will never let that happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are thwarting the work, the mission that God has sent me here for. 
So even Peter having direct conversation with Jesus, knowing the facts, Jesus is trying to tell them over and over and over again, as clearly as can be, and right over their heads. I, I give some people in Scripture, I give a lot of people in Scripture a lot of leeway because I try to put myself like, how would I have reacted, right? Like, because I'm in hindsight, I can look and be like, what idiots? How did they not see this? You know, and I've been guilty of this my whole life as I read the Scriptures. But I look at some of the prophecies of the Old Testament that that now we look back on and clearly point to Jesus coming and being who he is. And I go, I don't know if it would have been that clear. See some of the things that David remarked. See some of the things that Isaiah foretold. Looking back, we know who fulfilled the promises. But in the moment at that time, I don't know if it would have occurred to us apart from the intervention of God's spirit. But you see, the message that Jesus was giving to the disciples and his followers and his hearers was very direct. This won't last forever. He even told them, he says, it's better that I go because when I go, another helper will come. He was ushering in the Holy Spirit, announcing the arrival of the Holy Spirit would come. So they acted like people. When the angels said, just as he told you, they said, I don't remember him saying that. I don't, I don't know if I can wrap my head around this being what he really meant. Uh, where is he? How did he, how did he get up? And the angel says, just go and tell the disciples and Peter, go tell him he's going to meet you at Galilee. Go. What I love about the presence of the angel here, not like it was my plan to insert it, is that there have been so many accusations to discredit the resurrection along the way. Well, maybe the body was stolen. Maybe as as they came, they were just late to the punch and somebody trying to keep the scheme going got in there and removed his body or maybe they went to the wrong address. They picked the wrong empty tomb. That happens, right? You see a lot of condos lined up. You always pick the wrong door. Maybe that's what happened. Or as we said earlier, Jesus didn't really die. He woke up and said, I gotta get out of this place. The presence of the angel, according to the story, changes all of that and answers and refutes all of those attempts to discredit the resurrection many in academics would say well you can't use a character in the story to prove the story is true but there's so a host of other things things we can't get into now that 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 credit the story that jesus actually rose from the dead but pertinent to our discussion pertinent to the characters in our story i'm just going to mention this one We have the marys showing up to be the recipients of the proclamation that it worked That everything Jesus said when he said, uh, when he offended the Pharisees and they said, how do we know you're the son of God? He says, destroy this temple. He was talking about his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll be raised up. And of course they thought he was talking about the actual temple and they thought it was, it'd be a bigger miracle that if someone knocked it down, he could rebuild the bricks in three days. Bigger somehow than coming back from the dead. And so they were offended. They were confused by that and everything. And so Jesus said, I will stake everything I say and do on the fact that I'm walking out of that tomb. And so now it's happened. And they are going to share the story with two women. And women's testimony in that day and age wasn't just ignored. It was discredited. It had no validity A lady comes and says, I saw an eyewitness this. They'd be like, don't need to hear it from you. Your voice doesn't matter in our society. So God in his plan says, I'm going to give the message first and foremost to these women that show up. 
because the story is much bigger than our attempts to manufacture how we market it, how we send it out, how we proclaim it. It's God's message from start to finish. He owns the process. So what did they do? They've been told this. They're taking it all in. In a matter of seconds, this this confusing uh, presence is here. Verse 8 says, And they went out, and they performed what we've seen in the cartoons over and over again in Scooby-Doo and in Tom and Jerry and everything, they jumped up in the air and their feet started going for fear. And that's what I, that was my, I grew up on Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny. So they went out and fled from the tomb for again, polite, easygoing black and white language for trembling and astonishment had seized them, but they were running where they couldn't even move. They were trying to scream and couldn't get it out. The, the angel saying, so do you get what I'm saying here? And they're like, ah, and they home alone it right out of there. They said nothing to anyone, at least for a time. The story does fill in for us. They eventually speak, for they were afraid. Imagine all that's going on. Mary Magdalene, one of the characters in our story here, she's been rescued by Jesus. The scripture says that she contained in her physical being seven demons. find that interesting that we have those kinds of specifics that Jesus addressed all seven and cast them out. She has dedicated her life by being freed from that. She has dedicated her life to the message of the Messiah. And she says, I will go where he goes. I will serve him at all costs. And, and, and now the realization that those demons aren't coming back, the understanding that, that it wasn't just some weird trip I was on, or maybe I ate some bad pizza the night before, or maybe I got swept up in this whole Messiah thing. And what he really did for me was probably more like, you know, being freed from a psychotic break or something like that. Maybe we imagined it all. No, see, because he came out of the tomb, it's done. That that really happened to her. That now she's freed from that oppression, that she's been released from that burden, that he is who he said he was. The, the impact of the resurrection on, on history is insurmountable. I like how D.A. Carson kind of gives us a few examples, just skimming the surface here on what the um, the impact of the resurrection can have. So I'm just going to share a few of his points and we'll comment and move on. He says, first, the resurrection vindicates Jesus because a Roman court had said, you're guilty. And then they crucified him in the most um, uh, uh, heinous way possible, which was often seen as a curse from God to die on the, on, by hanging on a tree. And so what, what they thought they had was a, another icon struck down in his prime. Somebody who was stirring up the masses, somebody that was like we see a lot over the, over the last couple of decades even, where our rock idols kind of die in their late 20s or their early 30s. They make some major contribution in this, in this critical period of time. And then they do something foolish or they're addicted to something or some tragedy befalls them. And we start elevating their status to this iconic thing that they've accomplished. And then the legend of them grows beyond what their impact even was. It was, it was very close to this happening to Jesus if there were no resurrection. 
We even get elements of this today. People are happy to admit his contributions to the earth. They'd probably say he probably went a little far with the whole claiming to be God thing. We all have our flaws, right? So maybe he was a little torqued out a little bit in the brain that while all the good that he did showing us how to serve one another and forgiving your enemies, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that should put his face on our t-shirts and we should celebrate him at, at, at uh, festivals and things like that. You see, Jesus was so close to being of that iconic stature until he walked out of the tomb. It vindicates that he wasn't guilty of his own sins. He was carrying ours to the cross. It also demonstrates the gospel's concern for people embodied. And really, I think what Carson was getting at when he said this is Paul addresses in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. We've we've been studying a lot about the Corinthian church. We know they needed a lot of correction. But in particular, early on in the ministry there, they were starting to fall prey to this theology that said there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is confronting them saying, are you telling me that you are claiming to be a Christian, basing your faith on Jesus, and then saying you don't really believe that the dead come back to life? We base everything on the fact that he did exactly that. And so Paul is dealing with this church and trying to help them to see that God is going to do something physical in a transformative way. He also says in that chapter, It's like a seed being planted in the ground. When it comes out of the ground, it's not in the same form it was. That the resurrection that we can anticipate is something that's really hard for us to comprehend, but it's real. It's going to be present and physical. It's strange. If you read the account of Jesus coming back and he's visiting with his followers, he says, do you guys have anything to eat? That his resurrected body felt hunger. And then he says, oh, I want to go in that room. And he walks through a wall. I don't know what that is. I'm sure somebody somewhere has attempted to explain all that, but I don't know what that is. God is going to do something renewed but physical in our life. We're not just going to get lost out into space somewhere, unembodied. That Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. He goes before us and we will follow him. Lastly, Carson points out that this gives us a vision of life and existence beyond what we know. That now our goal isn't to strive to just get into our older years. That now all of our resolutions aren't just about staying healthy so that we can live forever and putting all these. Those things are responsible, healthy, good things to do. But we don't place our hope in any of those things. Some of the healthiest people still drop dead of a heart attack when it's time. So it encourages us, it moves us to start putting our hope somewhere in someone that is not what we see, feel, and smell, and hear. Instead, it is the one who's gone before us, and we will have a very similar experience when we die in him. That's why Paul also told the Thessalonian church, therefore encourage one another with these words. If you let that sink in and you think all the things that I let last year engulf me and and wrap me around the axle were all about the here and now, all very short-sighted, all all very limiting and constricting in what things the Lord has for me. But as I set my sights on an eternity that, 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 that is not thwarted because of the things that happen to me here, I am encouraged with these words. The resurrection has had historical, universal impact, but it has also had an extremely personal impact. One of our characters in the story here, Peter, 
is on record for being an extremely zealous, available, very kind of, you know how it is. You're around people like they're doing good things. And I don't think they're necessarily out to get all the credit, but they certainly don't mind the attention. This probably sums up Peter. I think Peter's probably one of the most sincere people that ever walked the earth, but he also wasn't the type of person that said, I don't want to speak up first because I don't want to get all the credit. Peter didn't mind at all. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, um, uh, we've been doing this for a while. What's the reputation out there? What do people say about me? Who do they think I am? And, and, and some said, well, they think that you're the prophet Elijah or that you're, and, and he said, Jesus got more specific and said, well, who do you disciples say that I am? Peter, without hesitation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, basically moving him up to the head of the class. And said, amen, Peter, you nailed it. You didn't get this from your own flesh. My father has revealed this to you. And you're Peter, you're Petros, you're, you're a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Well done, Peter, you nailed it. And Peter's thinking like any of us do and would. I got that one. He knows my name. I'm moving up in the class. He might not have said it, but who wouldn't feel that? You see, Peter was just the first to do it all. He was willing to try anything. He wanted to show his Savior how dedicated he was, how much he loved him at any cost until we get to just a couple chapters before we get here. And what happens on the night that Jesus is being arrested, we can see in Mark 14, verse 66. Scripture says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So Jesus has already been taken in. The heat is real. The disciples do their own Scooby-Doo thing and get out of Dodge. And uh, and the servant girl, the high priest came, seeing Peter war- uh, warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene. You were with Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And that's what started this thing that Jesus had said to him before. Peter showing his his eagerness to follow the Savior and not let any of these things happen. I'm going to go to bat for you. I'm going to back off these soldiers and everything. Jesus said, you know what? Before the rooster crows two times, you will have three times denied me. Peter said, I'm sorry. Um, You've got me mistaken with Judas. I was the one that you said could move up to the head of the class. I'm the one jumping out on the water. I'm the one doing all those things. You've got me pegged wrong. You can count on me. This isn't going to happen to me. The rooster crows one time. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. We see it now. You're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, when this all goes down, the rooster's going to crow twice. You have denied me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter is not just having an emotional moment. Peter isn't just quote unquote sorrowful or oops, I messed up that one. Imagine all of your identity being a particular type of person and when it mattered most, it falling short. 
and, and having the confirming words, the echoing words of Jesus in your ear, I told you you would do this. And, and that obnoxious, annoying sound of a rooster reminding you, like, shut up, bird. I don't need to be reminded who I am. Peter's head drops, his soul just empties out, and he thinks, I'm done. When he needed me most, there I was, useless. Peter isn't just having a pity party. He's not just having a bad day. His whole identity, his whole acts of service and commitment to his Lord have been rendered incomplete, useless, negligible. So there's two words in our text that I glossed over that'll help us think about 2020. Going back to chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, we're reminded the angel said to them, don't be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell Peter, I haven't forgotten about him. Go tell Peter that as his head is hanging low, while his life looks empty and wasteful, while he thinks he's let me down, please go and show him some grace. I am highlighting and emphasizing Peter in my message because I want him to know I haven't forgotten he exists. Go and tell Peter that he hasn't blown it like he thinks he has. Go and tell Peter that I'm going to restore him and we're going to turn this whole world upside down. Go and tell Peter that I wasn't lying to him when I said that the church would be built on his efforts and his service. Go and tell him he's not done. Grace has been referred to often as unmerited favor, which is certainly true. Nice and short and concise, something we can hang on to. Others have said that it's not getting what you deserve and it's also getting what you don't deserve. What Peter deserved was embarrassment, shame, and ridicule. Instead, what he got was something he didn't deserve, which was uh, an embracing, a, a rallying around, a, a building up. You see, grace isn't just something that fits in a slogan. It was demonstrated to Peter with two words. This is the character of our God that even though he was resurrected and vindicated and proven right, he could have got up and danced on the tomb and said, you're all a bunch of idiots and losers. You didn't think I could pull it off, but I did. Make it all about vindication. Make it all about retaliation. But he made it about grace. Hebrews ten seventeen, The scripture says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then famously, Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We can make our New Year's resolutions. Nothing really wrong with that. Probably have those ideas for a good reason. But I think the greatest resolution that we can make, the greatest change that we can make going forward is one that is experiencing the grace of God that he so willingly wants to pour on us. 
and then turning and demonstrating that grace to the people who need it most. And, and I would contend to say to you this morning that the people that need the grace that can come from you, th- through you, from God, the most are the people you know. Not so much the strangers that are out there, or the, the nameless faces, they need grace too. But the harder call for us is to have an Ann Peter attitude towards those that have hurt us, they've offended us, they've said the things, they've denied us, they've walked away, they've done all those things, and yet Jesus said, that's the one I'm going after first. Let's not get, and I'm going to say this with all the compassion I can muster. I hope you understand where I'm coming from with this. Let's not get hung up on this notion that we can't move forward until we forgive ourselves. I understand where that comes from. I understand the the hang up of the fact that we have really good memories, that we know what we've done to other people. We know what we've done to ourselves, but ultimately we know what we've done to God. And then we make statements like, well, I know God's forgiven me, but I just, I can't forgive myself on this. Please hear me. You did not walk out of that tomb. Your weight of forgiveness is nowhere near the weight of the one who conquered death. And yet somehow we cheapen that grace, we cheapen that forgiveness when we say, well, I know all that he's done, but I just can't get over me. Therefore, I'm going to stay stuck. But I know we have very close memories. I know we have very close hurts. And that idea of forgiveness of ourselves really equates to, I just wish I could erase the memory bank. I wish it wasn't right on my shoulder, as near as it is. How did Peter get over this? How did Peter pour his whole life into following Jesus to blow it in that moment and then to move on? How did he impact the the gospel for the rest of the New Testament? How did he become the foundation, if you will, earthly speaking, for all that we know in the church today? He probably and I know more than probably because we see evidence of it in the New Testament, he went and had other Ann Peter moments for somebody else. He took the grace that God had, had shown him and he didn't squander it. He found that person who needed that grace shown to them and he humbled himself before the Lord and showed that grace. He showed that forgiveness. This is what you and I need to walk into this next year ready to do. Let the calendar flip. Let 2019 go away. Let it all the things that you wish you hadn't done, hadn't said, hadn't thought. Let the Lord's grace just cover that, forgive you of that, close the chapter on that and say, now, I know you're still going to remember it. Let's not pretend that we won't. But go and show somebody that grace so that over time as a byproduct of that faithfulness, that calendar date gets further and further and further away from me. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has to offer us. That's why we focus on this today in our new year. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, I just want to, I thank you, Lord, for finished work. I thank you that you didn't leave the pieces uh, open-ended, that you didn't have uh, more work that you needed to do that didn't quite come together, that in this one account, Lord, we know that it was all taken care of. So God, we don't have to overthink it. We don't have to overcomplicate it. We just have to surrender to it. Change us all. Transform us, Lord. May people be impacted by the grace that we are now willing to show. Transform our families, our workplaces. 
places of our, our influence, Lord, change our church. May our church be stamped with the attitude of grace that we would be looking forward to forgive those who offend us. Lord, this is inconceivable in the human mind, but possible through your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for being faithful to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.